Thanks. Today we're going to continue our our series in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 4, verses 13 to 31. This is part two of the seven habits of a highly bold witness. I saw this cartoon the other day and I thought it, it was appropriate in an inappropriate sort of way. If you'll look at it, Sally says to Linus, I would have made a good evangelist. You know that kid who sits behind me at school? I convinced him that my religion is better than his religion. Linus asks, how'd you do that? Sally replies, I hit him with my lunchbox. Now, I love Sally, but that's not the kind of bold witnessing we're talking about. We're talking about the bold witnessing that's motivated by love. A love for God and a love for people. Witnessing that demonstrates love for God by obediently proclaiming his glorious message. And a witnessing that demonstrates a love for people by telling them how they can know this glorious God. Witnessing isn't hitting someone on the head with a lunchbox or a Bible. Witnessing is glorifying God by telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? And we're called to be bold witnesses, even in the face of opposition. If you remember, Acts chapter 4 is where we find that first opposition to the church, that first opposition to the church's spreading the gospel, telling about Jesus. It records what happened as a result of the events of Acts chapter 3. That's good. Acts chapter 4 follows Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John demonstrated love to a man who'd been lame since birth. They engaged with this needy guy, this out of work, this, I don't know if he was homeless guy, but this guy that was very needy. And in the name of Jesus Christ, they healed this man. And when a crowd gathered, Peter preaches the gospel to the crowd. Chapter 4 then records what happens. What's the aftermath? What happens after that event? Last week we looked at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4. We saw on the positive side, major church growth. 5,000 men, not to mention women or children, were saved after seeing the healing of this man and listening to the gospel preached by Peter. But that's not the focus of Acts chapter 4. The main focus is the opposition Peter and John faced after that event. And the boldness they demonstrated in the face of that opposition. So they faced opposition, but they were bold in in the face of that opposition. Peter and John are confronted by some Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish leaders are, words of the ESV, greatly annoyed by what they were doing. Specifically, they were ticked off that Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And from that, we saw that that first habit of a highly bold witness. We're reviewing what we talked about last week. That is, be confident in the truth of the resurrection. A highly bold witness is confident. They understand the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and they proclaim that. Now, the religious leaders, after this, arrest Peter and John for proclaiming that resurrection. They hold them overnight, and then they bring them before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish religious, Jewish ruling council. And what the Sanhedrin want to know is under whose authority they had done what they did. Under whose authority did they heal this guy? And Peter boldly tells them, 
He tells them that the lame beggar was healed under the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. And Luke, in in verse 8, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us what gave Peter the boldness to speak to these powerful men, his leaders, these these, uh, leaders of his people. He begins in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, And from that we saw the second habit of a highly bold witness. That is, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. The continual filling of the Holy Spirit is critical, crucial, necessary, can't be done without it, to bold witnessing. Now what's Peter and John tell them that it's in the name of Jesus Christ they've healed the man? He goes on to boldly proclaim the gospel to them. This is the third time. He had that first sermon after Pentecost, the sermon after the healing of the lame beggar, and now in to these Jewish religious leaders. He proclaimed the gospel again. And he ends his message with the words found in Acts 4.12. Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And from that we got our third habit of a highly bold witness. That is, be clear on the exclusive claims of the gospel. Peter makes it clear that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. And that's where we left off last week. Now today, we want to continue walking through Acts chapter 4. And what I want to do is point out out four more habits of a highly bold witness. So let's pick up in verse 13. Peter and John are still before the Sanhedrin. They've just told them that the salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, the Sanhedrin make this observation. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Notice that these men are astonished by the boldness of Peter and John. And it was astonishing. Now we've been talking about boldness both last week and even in the beginning here. But this is the first time the actual word is used in our passage. And what the word boldness in Greek means is speaking out openly with confidence. And in the book of Acts, it's used a number of times. We see it throughout. And it refers to what the ESV study Bible calls spirit-inspired courage and confidence to speak in spite of any danger or threat. Spirit-inspired courage and confidence to speak in spite of any danger or threat. And the Sanhedrin are astonished. They're they're blown away that these uneducated, common men would confidently speak these challenging words, these confrontational even words, in their presence. Why? Because, Because they were the intelligentsia of the day. They respected the political and religious leaders. How could these uneducated, common men be so bold? But they'd seen this before. They'd run into another man who, from their perspectives, was uneducated, was common, a mere carpenter's son from Nazareth. And Peter and John had been with him, and they were behaving like him. The Sanhedrin had gotten rid of Jesus, they thought, but now they're going to have to deal with his followers, these other guys. And that brings us to the fourth habit of a highly bold witness, that is, be connected to Jesus. Be connected to Jesus. To Jesus. Why were Peter and John, these common, uneducated men, so bold? 
Well, the Jewish religious leaders, this may be the only time, but they get it right this time. They get it right because they'd been with Jesus. Jesus had boldly proclaimed the truth of the, to these very same men. On a number of occasions, he confronted them many times during his ministry. And Luke, in his gospel, records Jesus' final bold words to them. The words he spoke before he was handed over. So if you remember, Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin in his religious trial. And then they hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 67, they ask Jesus a question. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, I tell you, you will not believe. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they, also, so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Jesus boldly proclaims that he is the Son of Man the Son of God, that he'll be seated at the right hand of the Father. And it was after these bold words, that's how they interpreted him. He's being a little cagey, Jesus, not saying it directly, but they knew what he was saying because it's after these words that he's turned over to be crucified. We don't need any other witnesses, they say. He's condemned himself with his own words. Peter and John are bold like Jesus because they'd been with Jesus. And if we want to be bold witnesses, then we have to be in the habit of connecting with Jesus. We must be in the habit of spending time with him, spending time in his word, for he is the word. Spending time in in prayer, allowing his word, not the world, allowing his word, not the world, to be the influence in our lives. You know, many of us are not bold because we're worried about saying the wrong things. What if, I, what if I mess up? What if they ask me to explain why God allows evil to exist? What if they want to know what happens to those who never have heard the gospel? What am I going to say? I don't know all the answers. Now remember, Peter and John were uneducated common men. But they were men who were connected to Christ. It was Jesus who had outpoured on them, who had given them the power of the Spirit, and through the power of the Spirit working in and through them, that, that, that's what gave them this boldness in witness. That gave them the ability to proclaim the gospel. What I want you to see is that biblical boldness is not based on personality. It's based on our relationship to Christ. There are all kinds of people and all kinds of personality types in the book of Acts. And throughout history, throughout, his, throughout the book of Acts and throughout history, people with different kinds of personality types have proclaimed the gospel. It doesn't matter whether you're outgoing or not, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. What matters is if you're connected to Jesus. Are we allowing him to work in and through our lives? Are we submitting to his will? Are we surrendering to his mission, to his plan, to his goals? And something else we need to understand when we're connected to Jesus, and this is important, this is a theme throughout this whole chapter. When we step out in faith and boldly proclaim the gospel, 
like Peter and John, we will face opposition. Should be a Surgeon General's warning. Warning, being connected to Jesus will not reduce the opposition, it will increase it. As Paul wrote to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're connected to Christ, first of all, people are going to know it. They're going to see it. You can't be connected to Jesus and then be hidden. And you will face persecution, opposition. When Jesus boldly spoke out before the Sanhedrin, they sent him to the Romans for crucifixion. And I'm sure they would have liked to do the same thing to Peter and John. But Acts chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, we read this. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The Sanhedrin, this this group of men, wanted to stop Peter and John. Wanted to stop them from preaching the gospel. But the, the no longer lame beggar was standing right there. They had evidence. They had proof that attested to the fact that God was with them. The man was right there in front of everyone's face. They couldn't deny it. But they do deny it. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay, they can't deny the healing of the lame beggar, but they do deny the name that the lame beggar was healed in, that the healing was done in. You know, sometimes we think if, if only, if only it could be like in the days of, the apostles, if only we could do miraculous signs and wonders, then everyone would believe. But that's not the case. We have examples of these guys seeing the signs and wonders. These men are faced with the undeniable evidence that Peter and John are attested to, verified, seal of approval of God is on them. And what do they do? They warn them not to speak anymore in this name, the name of Jesus Christ, who the name that had healed this lame beggar. And how did Peter and John respond to this warning? Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Or we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Okay, guys, he said, they say, you guys who claim to be representatives of God among our people, God told us to tell the world about Jesus. You're telling us not to speak about Jesus. Should we obey you or God? We'll let you guys figure that one out, they say. And that brings us to the fifth habit of a highly bold witness. That is, be concerned with obedience to God. Be concerned with obedience to God rather than men. Even though their leaders were telling them not to speak about Jesus, Peter and John knew that obedience to God was a higher priority. It came first. As they would say clearly in Acts chapter 5, next chapter, when they encounter a similar circumstance, we must obey God rather than men. Now this is not to say, as Christians, 
we don't obey men. In Scripture, we're commanded to obey our rulers, our leaders, our governing officials. What Peter and John are dealing with here is when the commands of their human rulers conflict with the commands of God. The human ruler said, don't speak about Jesus. But Jesus, God the Son, had said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the principle is this, we obey man's laws unless they conflict with God's clear commands. Now, fortunately for us in the U.S., our government hasn't yet outlawed evangelism, unless it happened yesterday or today. I don't know about it. But that's not the case in many places in the world. According to a Pew Research study, in 34% of countries worldwide, there's some level of government limits on proselytizing, sharing about one's faith in an attempt to get another person to join that faith. So we need to pray. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in these nations. Pray that God would give them protection, wisdom, boldness, this includes several, several of our own missionaries. Several of our missionaries live in this 34%. But what about us in the U.S.? What about us here? Even though we don't have laws against sharing our faith, we have rules, both written and unwritten, against witnessing. There's the, the cultural rule. Maybe we're all familiar with it. You can talk about anything, but you can't talk about religion and politics. And I know some of you have faced rules against sharing your faith in your workplace. This can be the case in any job, but it's especially true in our public schools. Chad, our worship leader, who's an English teacher, has shared with us about the letter he received from his principal telling him to immediately cease and desist from telling people about his Christian faith. So what do we do? We need to be good employees. We want to witness with our lives, right? By obeying the rules, by doing a good job. But what if the rules contradict with the word of God, the commands of Christ? Peter and John in scripture would say, we must obey God rather than men. Now, how that works out in each individual's life and each individual's job may be different. I'm not saying that every teacher needs to give a a PowerPoint gospel presentation in all their classes. I'm not saying that every employee needs to stand on their desk or whatever, wherever they work, and and proclaim that salvation is, is in Christ alone. But what I am saying is that we need to think about these matters. We need to think about these matters. We need to be concerned with obedience to God. We need to know that he's commanded us to be his witnesses. We can't just rule out the possibility of sharing our faith because there are man-made rules against it. We must be willing to stand up for the gospel, even if it means facing opposition. And I know that's radical thinking, and I don't say it lightly, but we need to be willing to risk opposition to obey God. We need to seek Like those in that 34%, we need to seek God's protection, God's wisdom, and God's boldness in sharing our faith in places where the rules of man would seek to forbid it. Peter and John were told to be quiet about Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. 
but they were under command from God as well as an internal compulsion. They said, we can't but speak of what we've seen and heard. Are you internally, do you have that internal compulsion to speak about what Christ has done in your life? We can't help it. The gospel is so important that it must be proclaimed. It's more important than our job and our finances and our relationships. Obeying the laws of man. Then in verse 21, we see the reaction to Peter and John's statement by the Sanhedrin. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 40 years old. Excuse me. So they threatened them, and they let them go. They wanted to punish them, but they couldn't because the people were praising God for what had been done. The people had had known this lame beggar for many years, probably his whole life. And now for the first time ever, they had seen him on the temple steps. They had seen him. Many of them had probably tossed a few coins into his cup. And now he's walking and leaping and praising God. This is undeniable proof that Peter and John are God's messengers. But still, the Jewish religious, religious leaders deny their message. They deny the message of salvation through Christ. So Peter and John move on. And in verse 23 we read, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they go find their friends. Good move. The apostles find the, the other apostles, their friends. And maybe some of that 8,000, that 120, they've got a lot of friends now, these new believers. They tell them what had happened. And you know what happens? A prayer meeting breaks out. Verse 24, And when they heard it, they, the friends, the apostles, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your Holy Spirit, said by the... I read that wrong. David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, dot, dot, dot. We'll get to what he said. But notice, they begin their prayer meeting by acknowledging the sovereignty of the Lord. Don't miss this. This is a great example for us. When they come back after facing opposition, what do they do? They don't start worrying. Oh, what's going to happen next? Oh, no. Are there spies? What's going to happen? They don't have a pity party. Oh, woe is us. They don't devise a new strategy for opposition-free evangelism. Instead, they cry out to the Lord of the universe, the one who made heaven and earth and the seas and everything in them, who speaks and history unfolds. Then Peter quotes David's David's Holy Spirit-inspired words from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Why did the... Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot invade and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed? David asks about raging Gentiles and plotting people. Kings of the earth and rulers all all settling themselves, setting themselves against God's anointed. God's anointed refers to the Messiah, the, the anointed one of God, the Savior that was to come. In David's time, Peter is saying, what Peter is saying is that David was saying that when 
God's anointed Messiah came, he would be opposed by the powerful. And then he points to how Jesus was opposed by the powerful. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Jesus the anointed one, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In Jerusalem, Jesus, the anointed holy servant, the Messiah, the Savior, was opposed by the powerful. Herod, the king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Palestine, the Roman governor of Palestine. Gentiles opposed him. The Romans and the people of Israel opposed him. But notice, Peter goes back to God's sovereignty. They all opposed him, but God was always in control. God had predestined that Jesus would be opposed by the powerful. It was God's plan that Jesus be crucified for the sins of humanity. What Peter is saying is that Jesus was opposed and crucified, but God was in absolute control. This wasn't a, 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 a hitch in God's plan. It was God's plan. And now, the followers of Jesus are being opposed, and God is still in absolute control. And that brings us to the sixth habit of a highly bold witness, that is, be convinced, be convinced of God's sovereign power. Whether you face opposition like like Jesus did, like Peter and John did, like Chad did, or you face rejection, or apathy, or even acceptance, yes, there will be acceptance at times, never, never, never forget God is in absolute control. God always has absolute control and authority. God is the one who draws people to Himself, Scripture says. God is the one who opens doors. God is the one who changes hearts. And God has chosen, in His infinite wisdom, to use His people to proclaim the message of salvation. And because we are His messengers, we will face opposition. There's a a reason for the statement... Don't shoot the messenger. Because sometimes the messenger gets shot. And Peter wants the messengers, both then and now, to know that opposition is part of the deal. It's a normal thing that we'll face. That they, those believers there and, and us now, will face opposition to the gospel. But more than that, Peter wants them to know That God is in control. Okay, there's going to be opposition, but God is in control. Even in the sometimes we think, okay, if they accept Jesus, God was in control. If they reject Jesus, oh, what happened to God? He must have been busy doing something else. God is always in control. It's at this point when they're being opposed that they point out the sovereignty of God. God is at work when we boldly share the gospel, irregardless. Dang it, Patty, I said it again. Regardless, that word regardless of whether it's accepted or rejected. The point is, the point is, and we sang it in our uh, final song in the worship set, that there's a cost. There's a cost when we witness. It may cost us a, a relationship here now in our current situation. It may cost us trouble at work. 
It may cost us our reputation with certain kinds of people. Oh, you're a Christian? I, I find that hard to believe. I thought you were educated. And our tendency, our tendency, what we want to do in our flesh is to run from anything that costs. However, what I think Peter and John are saying to the early church and to us is don't be surprised when you encounter opposition to the gospel. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you have to pay an earthly price for sharing a heavenly message. Instead, know that even the cost, even the cost that you pay, the opposition is in the sovereign hands of God. Jesus faced opposition, and we, as his followers, will face opposition. If you're not facing opposition, a little radical here, maybe you're not doing what God wants you to do. Just a thought. And I'm, I'm thinking about it that in my mind as well. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, makes this poetic yet yet profound statement. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. We, Christians, bold witnesses, cause a reaction among people. Paul says, We are the aroma of Christ to God. We are the aroma of and the aroma, uh, the aroma, the smell we exude is different to different people. To those, those who are perishing, it's a fragrance of death to death. To those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. And the point is this. When we witness boldly, whether we are that aroma of life and people accept, or we're that aroma of death and people reject, in either case... It's not up to us. God is sovereign over all that. So be convinced of his sovereignty. Step out in faith and and boldly witness. And whether you're accepted or rejected, trust that God is in control. He's working for his purposes. That's what Peter and John, that's what the early church did. In In the face of opposition and through prayer, they rested in God's sovereignty. And then... Once they understood the sovereignty of God, they prayed for themselves. They turned their prayers to themselves. A little selfish, don't you think? But notice, they didn't pray for less opposition. They prayed for more boldness. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, we've been threatened. If you don't stop insisting that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you can expect to follow in his footsteps. The early church knew that the Romans still had plenty of crosses. They knew that these were not idle threats. These were The men threatening them were the same men that turned Jesus over to the Romans. And they also knew that in their hearts, they were prone to fear. They were prone to weakness. So they prayed, Please, Lord, grant us, your servants, boldness. The prayer continues in verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
Give us boldness to speak about Jesus and continue to attest to our words by allowing us to perform signs and wonders in your name. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Powerful. Powerful. Basically, verse 31 is God saying yes to their prayers. The house shakes. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit, they continue to speak the word of God in boldness. In the face of opposition, the mission Jesus gave to the church continues. And that brings us to the end of the passage and the final of the seven habits of a highly bold witness. That is, be committed to praying for boldness. Be committed to praying for boldness. Now, I'm not opposed to all kinds of prayers, prayers for all kinds of things, to taking all of your needs to your loving Heavenly Father, but I think we often forget about what I believe is the most important purpose of prayer. We falsely believe prayer is just, is just for bringing God our list, our list of the things we think we need, things we think we need, that our life will be better. When in fact, prayer is about getting what we need to accomplish the mission God has given us. Prayer is about getting what we need to accomplish the mission God has given us. As John Piper put it, prayer is not for the enhancement of our comforts, but for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Peter and John knew this well. They faced opposition. They faced threats because of their bold witness, and what do they do? They pray. They acknowledge God's sovereignty, even and especially in the face of opposition, and then they prayed for greater boldness to preach the gospel. They pray for the ability to advance Christ's kingdom. And we need that kind of prayer among us. We need Christ's kingdom advancing prayer. Because and I think I'm speaking for all of us, we find it difficult to be bold. It's hard to step out in faith and share the gospel. We struggle to open our mouths and tell people the awesome message of salvation that Christ offers. And that's normal. Peter and John knew that that was their natural tendency. But what did they do? They prayed. Do we want, do we truly want the advancement of Christ's kingdom? Or are we happy just being us? Just being here? Do we want the boldness we need to be His witnesses? And if we do, if we're saying, yes, I want that boldness, do you pray for it? Do we pray for it? Do we pray for it on a regular basis? Is this part of who we are? Are we people that pray for boldness? And instead of talking more about praying for boldness this morning, I want to end our service by praying for boldness. I've asked six people, seven people, including myself, to pray. And we're going to pray that we as individuals and as a congregation will develop and demonstrate these seven habits of a highly bold witness. So if those six people you know who you are, and the worship team would come forward. And just uh, We're going to do this in the order 
So if you're number, I'm number one. I mean, you guys knew that. I didn't have to say that. But number two, three, four, five, six, seven. Chad is number seven, and he can go up to the podium. And we're going to pray. I would ask those who would, and I would ask those, you guys, that would receive these, these prayers for boldness to, to stand where you are. There may be some here today who feel they aren't, aren't ready for that. Maybe you're not sure. If you're not sure, you want this kind of boldness, because I believe God answers prayers. I believe he wants to answer this prayer. I believe this is a prayer in the will of God, that we would be his bold witnesses. So if you want to be a bold witness... That's what we're going to be praying for. We're going to pray for those who stand. So if you want to receive these prayers, please stand where you are.